The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This podcast contains mature content and listener discretion is advised. Also, be advised, we are not medical professionals and this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This is a test of the emergency podcast system. It is a true emergency. Quick, run. We love aliens. and we're in we're in welcome to mystery team inc the podcast where you wouldn't know we were having technical problems just now until i said something oh why'd you say something (laughs) i'm maggie and i'm a consummate professional even though it was my technical problems (laughs) (laughs) anyway welcome to mystery team inc it's a podcast and we are full of holiday cheer Correct. Um, If you clicked on the episode, you already know what it's about, and it's not a secret because we both know what it's about as well. So for the first time ever, I think we can go through this opening knowing what we know. Um, Mm -hmm. We, a couple of announcements. Uh, Part two will drop on December 20th, and we will be doing a TikTok live uh, December, Monday, December 20th at 7 p.m., to discuss the case and the theories. So if you're listening to this episode before then, put it on your calendar and come visit us on uh, TikTok. It's Mystery Team Inc. Um, And I think that's all of the business I have. What about you? I have no business. So today we are covering part one of the John JonBenet Ramsey case. It is the 25th anniversary this Christmas. And before we even get into it, I should say that we are endeavoring to present the facts as they have been reported. We're not making any accusations. That's like one thing we're not going to do in the course of this series. Um, You should also know that this episode contains sensitive material um, around child assault and murder. And... I also think it's important to say that before we get into this, that this is a case that the family really wants to keep alive. Um, John and John Andrew Ramsey did a documentary that I think that aired this year um, or maybe last year called John Benet, What Really Happened? And they're still seeking justice in the case. And they said that they hope that that documentary helps like keep this case in the spotlight um, to continue to put adequate pressure on all those involved to continue um, searching for the truth. So, you know, I think it's easy sometimes in true crime to over-report a case as this case has been in a damaging way. And that's not our intention. I think our intention is to continue to keep the case alive and bring new facts to light that maybe people don't know about that are, have been more recent developments. I want to cite some of my sources. Um, I did use the Discovery Plus documentary, John Bonet, What Really Happened, which features the Ramsey family. I also used John Bonet, Inside the Ramsey Murder Investigation by Steve Thomas and Don Davis. If you pick up this book, I should tell you, it's written by one of the detectives on the case, and he is very biased about his opinion about who did it. So that's just something you should know if you're going to read it. Um, and also I just like, don't entirely agree with his philosophy of policing, but we will, we'll get into that later. Um, he's a real gem. Also the book who killed John Benet Ramsey by Charles Bosworth and Cyril H. Wecht. Cyril Wecht is like the Tom Brady of forensic pathologists. 
Um, he consulted on the murder of JFK, Robert Kennedy, Sharon <gasps> Tate, Elvis Presley, Kurt Cobain, Whoa. the Branch Davidians, Lacey Peterson, Anna Nicole Smith, and the McDonald murders. No, he's also, that man is a walking true crime podcast. Correct. He's also the only pathologist of the four who worked on the Kennedy case to determine that the single bullet theory wasn't consistent with Kennedy's <gasps> head wounds. Oh, my God. So, so we trust him. We trust him. But he also <laughs> he also was convinced that Jeffrey McDonald definitely didn't murder his family. So I'm like, I don't know where oh. we fall on that. But um, yes. And then I also used um, Death of Innocence, which is the Ramses book. So I feel like I had um, I feel like I got a good number of perspectives on this case. Um. And without further ado, let's get into it. So John Bonet, Patricia Ramsey, was born in 1990. She was the daughter of Patricia Ramsey and John Bennett Ramsey. Her name was a combination of her father's first and middle name and her mother's name was her middle name. Her older brother, Burke, was born in 1987, so he was nine in 1996. He was three years older than she was. John Ramsey was the president of Access Graphics, which was a software company that John and Patsy started as, like, a basement startup together. Oh, they started it together? Mm -hmm. Like, he started the company, and she worked on it with him. Um, I think she was, like, she did the books, but I'm not positive. Damn, that's cool. And they worked to build the company until 1991 when the company caught the attention of Lockheed Martin who bought it and kept John as president. And for those of you who don't know, Lockheed Martin is like the world's largest defense contractor. Um, They make missile systems and other like aerospace stuff. Um, At the time, they were the world's second largest defense contractor behind Boeing. And in 1996, Access Graphics celebrated $1 billion in sales. I have a question about Access Graphics. Yeah. What... Um, was it? <laughs> it's a software company, but I don't know exactly what the software did. Yeah, because, like, what does that really mean? You know, a software company. That is just, like, it's so vague as to be alarming, you know? Yeah, but you have to remember that this was 1996 when software only did, like, four things. <laughs> oh, when software was just, like, missed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It got about 60% of its revenue from selling hardware and software from Sun Microsystems, known for its Unix workstations and Java software. But what does that mean? (laughs) I think that they were mostly like remarketers of hardware and software. Like they were just selling from like creator to end user. Mm. Okay, I'll accept that. And there was an article published that year about how they did $1 billion in sales. John was previously divorced. He had three children from a previous marriage. And in 1992, his daughter, Elizabeth, who was known as Beth, died in a car crash at the age of 22. Now, do we know, like, who was driving or what the circumstances of that car crash were? Because everything I've, like, heard and read so far just says, like, she died in a car crash. I don't know who was driving, but she was in the car with her boyfriend or fiance, and they both died. Oh, okay. Okay, copy that. That's tragic. It is. And Beth's death turned John's life completely upside down. I read in one of the books that he would sometimes be heard up in the attic in the middle of the night crying. That breaks my heart. Yeah. One of the authors was like, some say he never got over Beth's death. And I'm like, yeah. Like, you don't. (laughs) That's not, yeah, like, they were like, he never recovered. I'm like, yeah, you don't, truthfully. No, you just live with it. Correct. Um, Patsy Ramsey had won Miss West Virginia. She had competed for Miss America. Her sister had also been a pageant queen. Um, She had worked with John on their startup, which at the time was called TechSpec. They had, like, a couple different companies that all merged to form Access Graphics. And then after... Access Graphics was sold. She joined a friend's company called Hayes Computers, where she worked until she got pregnant with Burke in 1986. John Bonet was born in 1990, and then in 1993, Patsy was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and she had a hysterectomy at the age of 36. John Bonet was four years old when she started doing pageants. 
In the course of her pageant career, she was crowned America's Royal Miss, Little Miss Charlevoix, Little Miss Colorado, Colorado State All-Star Kids Cover Girl, and National Tiny Miss Beauty. I love... I love... Pageant names? Pageant names. Me too. What is Charlevoix? It might be pronounced Charlevoix. It's the name of a town. Okay. I just like... It makes me so happy. They can... It's like Little Miss Glitter Sunshine Tropical Escape. Yeah. Me too. It's my favorite. <laughs> I love it. Um, my favorite is when it's like, Disco Diva Party Till Dawn <laughs> Universe. <laughs> and then all the moms are like, well, if we ain't coming home with that Little Miss Diva Party Till Dawn Universe trophy, then I don't know who is. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know how you remembered all those words. but I don't know. I mean, that's dedication. <laughs> And then somehow they find routines and outfits that go with like Little Miss Diva Sparkle Party All Night Fun Time Universe. My, and it's like I couldn't even. My favorite begin. is when they're like, "We're gonna take her Pebbles Flintstone outfit from Little Miss Back in Time Prehistoric Jurassic Park, and we're just gonna put glitter on it and use that for her Miss Disco Diva Party All Night Universe pageant." And then it'll cut to a judge, and they'll be like. That dress just looked like it was recycled from a Little Miss Jurassic Park. (laughs) And I'm like, how did they know? How did they? Because this is all they do. Yeah, that's true. They know. I mean, the amount of knowledge those people have about this one specific thing. I also want to know who. Okay, this is more recent because it was like in the 2000s. But I want to know who is like the one guy in the fedora who's always. There's always one judge at these pageants who's just like a kind of old guy. In a fedora. And I'm like, what are his qualifications? Truly. Like when it's drag queens, I'm like, yes, I get it. Or when it's like former pageant queens, I'm like, yes, I get it. And even if that guy is like a coach, it's fine. But they never explain who they who he is. They always just cut to him saying something catty. And I'm like, who is that guy, though? Who are you? Yeah. No, that's a very good question. Um, should we do a deep dive? I was going to say, should we do an episode about it? <laughs> who are the pageant judges? We might have to. It's going to be like okay. the Girl Scout episode. Oh, my God. It's going to go all the way to the top. In a world. <laughs> JonBenet took what the book called Talent Lessons. And I'm like, I love that. <laughs> I think it was like singing and dancing, but I just love the phrase Talent Lessons. Yeah. Um, she wore... It's vague enough to fit literally any possibility you Correct. could come across. It's just a pageant coach, right? Probably. Yeah. Okay. I No, I th- actually, I think it's singing and dancing like I think it's like performance okay she wore handmade costumes which were paid for by John she also was a bit of a tomboy and she was smart she kept a list she kept a list of books that had been read to her on her nightstand John said that um at the time, people thought that Patsy was pushing John Bonet into pageants, but John says it was actually the other way around, and that John Bonet just like could not get enough of them, and she would like drag Patsy Ramsey all over the country because she wanted to be in pageants. I believe that only because I've seen so much toddlers and tiaras mm-hmm. that like, you know, some of the kids actually do enjoy it. Also. I was one of those kids, but I just did it with like theater. But I loved singing and dancing, and I would like oh, yeah. beg to be put. Like I did, I did so many musicals when I was like that age because I just loved it. Um, yeah, we were instead of being like we want to go get flippers and do our beauty routine, we we're like, please let we us are do 10 into years the woods. <laughs> we want to do Sondheim at ten years old. Also, Please. retrospectively, like, looking back at some of those performances, I'm like, I don't know who let us do, like, Chicago who, Junior. I don't know why. Who let us do a Candor and Ebb review <laughs> at 15? I want to know who let me do Guys and Dolls at, like, 10. Like, now that I know the plot of that musical, I'm like, wait. <laughs> do you know how many kids do Guys and Dolls at 10, too? It's like, absurd. It's really bananas. What was the other one that we did that was just, like... Uh, God's um, that was crazy to let <laughs> seventh graders do a play about Jesus dying. One day we have to sit our parents down and interview them yeah. about how weird it was to watch their children crucify a seventh grader. <laughs> 
I agree. Um, we crucified our friend three times a week for we a did. month. We did do that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, all of that to say that like I buy it, like I believe it that yes, she wanted to do pageants. Um, <laughs> also, like let kids ha- like things. I don't know. It's just, yeah, we'll get into it when we talk about the media. But like, yeah, just let kids like things. Um, in 1995, John Bennett was accidentally hit in the face with a golf club by her brother on the backswing. The same year, she tripped in a grocery store and landed on her nose. And six months later, she fell and hit her head again. From 1995 to 1996, she visited the doctor 18 times. Critics of the Ramsey family will point this out, and critics of the police will point out that kids fall down a lot. (laughs) Well, I was just thinking about how, like, it also could just be that Patsy was, like, an overprotective mom. Actually, I was going to say that. Um, Yeah, I feel like critics of the Ramseys point out that she went to the doctor 18 times but to me that says like oh that just means that every time she fell down patsy took her to the doctor yeah which is like fine if you have a lot of money and your child's like in pageants and they can't have scraped knees <laughs> yeah or i, I mean it, it just it just tells me that she was like concerned about her well-being because someone who's like yeah. abusing their children is not taking them to the doctor yeah. all the time no one who's abusing their child is taking their child to a professional every time and being like look what happened correct on December 17th, this is where it happens, is like the timeline starts to get condensed. On December 17th <laughs> of 1996, she was crowned Colorado's Little Miss Christmas. On December 22nd, JonBenet performed in a pageant at the mall. And if you watch the Discovery Plus documentary, John Ramsey says, I had always told her, talent's what counts. Don't worry about whether you're the prettiest or have the prettiest smile. Just work on your talent. I was late and she'd already performed and they'd already had the talent competition. And she came running up to me and said, dad, I won this for you. And it was the overall talent award. And she put it around my neck. That gives me chills. Me too. And if you watch the documentary, he, he just starts crying because it was her last performance. Oh, on December 23rd, the Ramseys hosted a Christmas party with about 24 guests. Phil McReynolds played Santa Claus. He will come into play later. John Bonet gave him a gift. Like, John Bonet gave Santa a gift. Oh my God. It was a vial of stardust to sprinkle in his beard. Oh my God. She also gave him a tour of the house and led him by the hand, showing him her bedroom and the basement where the Christmas trees were kept. At some point during the party, a policeman arrived at the home. The door was answered by a family friend of John and Patsy Ramsey named Susan Stein. Um, according to one source I read, she blamed the call on someone, like a drunk party guest, trying to order medicine for their aging parent and that they had accidentally dialed the emergency number. Um, she wouldn't... What? I'll Just listen. She wouldn't let the okay. police in. Um, the... Post, the Washington Post reported after all of this, um, after like in January of the next year about this incident, the Post reported that basically the police had gotten an emergency call. It had ended before the police dispatcher could talk to the person on the other end of the line. They called back. They got a voicemail. So they sent an officer to the home. The officer did not file a report. Um, In the Ramsey's book, Death of Innocence, they say during the party, Fleet White, who is another person who will come into play later in the story, but it's a close family friend of the Ramsey's. During the party, Fleet White used our phone to make a series of calls trying to get some medicine to his mother in a hospital in Aspen, Colorado. Apparently, he dialed wrong and got 911 instead of 411. The police called back, but after checking with Fleet and the rest of the people at the house, Susan Stein informed them that the call was a mistake. So he, like, accidentally dialed 911 and hung up. They called back and got a voicemail, so they sent an officer out. And then when the officer came out, they were like, oh, it was an accident. Okay. Of course, because you're a true crime listener, you know that this will be used to fuel many conspiracies. Um, But according to the Ramseys, that's what happened. On December 25th, which was Christmas, the Ramsey family attended a Christmas party at the home of Fleet White, the same person. According to John, they came home at 10 p.m. 
He tucked the kids in and read to them both before they went to sleep. They had an early flight the next morning. Patsy said that John Bonet went to bed in a red turtleneck sweater because they were like too tired to change basically after the party. Mm. At 5:52 a.m. on December 26th, Patsy Ramsey dialed 911. Obviously, I'm not gonna like play the phone call because I don't know. I just feel like it's exploitative, but um, I have a transcript, so I'm just gonna read some key pieces. She said, we have a kidnapping. Hurry, please. We have a, there's a note left and our daughter is gone. She's six years old. She's blonde. The 911 operator asked, how long ago was this? And Patsy said, I don't know. I just found a note and my daughter's missing. Um, The dispatcher asked her if it said who took her. She said, no, I don't know. It's there. There's a ransom note here. It says SBTC victory, please. Officer Rick French arrived at the house within minutes. Detective Steve Thomas says that Officer Rick French's arrival was the first of many mistakes the police would make that day because he arrived in a marked police car to a kidnapping. And we're going to get into it, but the ransom note explicitly says, if you call the police, we will kill your daughter. Mm -hmm. I just drink, you know, this is going to be a heavy... Drinking game, police incompetence series. Correct. So pace yourself. Maybe use some herbal tea. Drink some water. Drink some water. (laughs) When he arrived at the door, he was met by Patsy. And the Ramseys told Officer French that their six-year-old daughter was missing and their nine-year-old son was asleep upstairs. They showed Rick French three pages of white legal paper with a ransom note on it. The ransom note read, and I am going to read this. Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We respect your business, but not the country that it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed, and if if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. $100,000 will be in $100 bills and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money and hence a earlier delivery crossed out pickup of your daughter. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not to provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scanned for electronic devices, and if any are found, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but, but be warned that we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good southern common sense of yours. It's up to you now, John. Victory, SBTC. I mean, what a bizarre ransom note. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in the second half, um, but it's just so unhinged. It's, like, I think probably the longest ransom note, like, in history. Mm -hmm. Um, Just, like, rambling. Patsy told officers that she had gone into JonBenet's room at 5.45 a.m. to wake her up. The family was supposed to catch a flight to Michigan that morning. But JonBenet wasn't there, and when she went down the spiral staircase, she found the note. John claimed that he had locked up the house the night before, so at this point he went and checked the doors and found that they all still appeared to be locked. 
the alarm system had not been engaged that night. Officer Interesting. Mm-hmm. Officer French met Sergeant Reichenbach at the door and explained that it appeared to be a kidnapping. Patsy Ramsey had made two other telephone calls around the time that she called the police. She called Fleet and Priscilla White, whose house they'd been at the night before. And she also called John and Barbara Fernie. Both couples hurried over to the house. As is often pointed out when people cover this case, um, the incident occurred on Christmas night when every cop in Boulder who could manage to get time off was at home with their families. So the Boulder PD were woefully understaffed. But Sergeant Reichenbach called the following people to the crime scene. He called more officers, crime scene techs, victim advocates to comfort the Ramses. He had the phone company put a trap on the phone line. He called in Sergeant Bob Whitson. And he ceased police radio traffic in case the kidnappers were listening on a scanner. Which is smart and, like, not something I had ever thought about. Yeah, this is all solid. Police searched John Benet's room. They peeked into Burke's room and found that he appeared to be sleeping. Sergeant Reichenbach walked around the outside of the house and found no signs of forced entry. He went down to the basement and walked around. The Ramses had a sprawling basement that had several rooms in it. To the far right of the basement was a closed white door, and that door was secured with a wooden block attached to the top of the door frame that pivoted on a screw to latch the door closed. When Reichenbach went down to the basement, he pulled on that door, but he stopped when he felt resistance and then just continued searching. Okay. What? I just, like, okay, I mean... It's a choice. It's definitely a choice. That's that's how I feel. By 6.30 a.m., the Whites and the Fernies had arrived at the Ramsey house. Obviously, pe- this is where people say the cops fucked up again. Like, you need to... Okay, first things first. If there was someone breaking into a house, the first thing you want to do is clear all the rooms. Because that person could still be in the house. Yeah. You don't know. Um, the second thing is you want to get everybody out of the house, not let more people in there Mm because the house is a crime scene. (laughs) Um, did you go to police school? I did not go to police school. I'm I'm actually just naturally police talented. (laughs) Did you take talent lessons? I did. I took police talent lessons. (laughs) So Fleet White's daughter, who was John Bonet's age, had briefly gone missing the year before. And it turned out that she was just hiding in their house. Okay. So are we going to classify that as briefly going missing? Or are we going to classify that as hiding in their house? Well, we're going to classify it as the family thought that she was missing. And so when this happened, Fleet White's logic was like, she may be in the house somewhere hiding. Like, we don't know. Um, I'm going to walk around and just like make sure she's not in here somewhere. Okay. So he went down to the basement and he saw a broken window below ground level and he found a piece of glass on the floor from the window. So he picked it up and he put it on the window ledge. Girl, there was also why? Correct. There was also a suitcase that was directly beneath the window and when he was like picking up the glass and like cleaning it up, he moved the suitcase in the process. <laughs> I What's so interesting about this, and I think it'll come up again in a second, is that everyone who came into this house really was, like, in this mode of, like, upper class, like, well, we better clean up after ourselves. And not in a mode of, like, this is a crime scene. They were all just doing that thing where it's like, oh, company's coming, like, can't have broken glass on the floor. (laughs) Yeah. The police are going to be looking in here. Yeah, exactly. Um, Like, I'm sure that came from, like, a good place. He was like, oh, there's glass on the floor. Like, wouldn't want someone to step on it. Um, Yeah. Fleet White approached the door with the wooden block latch from earlier. He unlocked the latch. He opened the door, which opened inward. 
but it was dark in the room and he couldn't find either of the two light switches. So not being able to really determine if there was anything of note in the room, he closed the door and relatched it. At 6.45 a.m., two victim advocates arrived. A crime scene tech dusted for fingerprints, while one of the victim advocates followed behind, wiping everything down with a spray surface cleaner and a cloth. Something interesting that Steve Thomas says, and again, he's a little biased, but I think he's right about this, uh, is that all the cops and all the techs and all the people who came to the crime scene that day were treating the Ramseys in a certain way because they were very wealthy. They were like pillars of the community. John Ramsey had recently like gained notoriety for like hitting a billion dollars in sales. And so everyone who came to the house was like walking on eggshells around them, trying to like take good care of their house and like be really polite to them. You're with these people who like are on such a like pedestal in a way. And I think this is actually where and people don't talk about this, but I think this is where the cops failed the Ramses maybe the most because they gave them this like special treatment because they were these like rich white people and it set them up to fail because then everyone questioned like why the Ramses were allowed to like leave the house or whatever. But it's because the cops yeah. were giving them special treatment because they were just like rich white people. And of yeah. course, worth noting, it wasn't, being treated as a murderer at this time, it was a high-profile kidnapping. So the Ramses were totally above suspicion. So no one was concerned that, like, the Ramses might have been involved. They were just like, oh, my God, these very rich people's daughter is missing. We have to take good care of them and their house. You know what I mean? And in, in yeah. doing so, I think they truly set the Ramses up to become the the accused. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting and not something I had really thought about. But you're definitely, I think you're very much correct. Because the, 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 I mean, and we'll find this out later, the Ramses cooperated with police, but like, especially in these early moments, the police just let them do whatever they want. And then the media was like, why was, I mean, we'll get into it, but the media would later be like, why was John allowed to leave the crime scene when he was in the house? Because he's a rich white man. Right. And it's like, oh, because he was a rich white guy. There were like three cops on staff and they didn't know what to do with themselves. Um, but then, of course, the media would turn that around as if the the Ramses getting special treatment was the Ramses manipulating. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I do that. I do feel like that's one of the ways in which the cops failed them. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's many, but the crime scene photographer took a photo of the note on the stairs, but... As we know, the note had already been picked up, spread out, run around the house and brought back to the stairs. So it's like all even the evidence they were collecting was not like effective. Wait, someone put they took the note back to the stairs to take a picture of it. There? Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> Reverend Rawl Hoverstock or Hoverstock arrived and was let inside to pray with the family. At 7.33 a.m., a canine unit was put on standby but not used, which is another fucking crazy thing because if they brought a dog in at this point, they would have immediately been able to follow John Bonet's scent. Yeah. Like, this whole thing could have been over at 7.30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, Burke, who was nine, was woken up, dressed, and taken out of the house by John Ramsey. Which people will criticize later. To me, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to get into it anymore, like d- judging the decisions that were made. But um, when police attempted to question Burke because he was in the house at the time of the disappearance, John told the police he slept through everything, he didn't know anything, and took him over to the, the White's house. Uh, the FBI and the DA had both been alerted by this point. At 8.10 a.m., two more detectives arrived, Detective Linda Arndt and Detective Fred Patterson. Also, I didn't write this down, but I feel like it's worth mentioning that Steve Thomas says in his book that the two were not on speaking terms for personal reasons, <laughs> which is just really? like, once again, like the most like bumbling cop thing to have happen is like they brought they brought two detectives in who like weren't speaking to each other. Oh, um, my God. While the detectives stayed with the Ramses, Rick French checked the garage and the lower levels of the house. 
He was looking for an exit point where an intruder might have escaped with John Bonet. In the basement, he came across the white door with the latch, but because he was looking for exit points, he didn't bother to open it because there's no way someone could have gone through and latched it behind themselves from the inside. What's interesting, the way that you are telling the story that I really like is there's like so many what ifs. Like, if this had been done differently, if this had been done differently. And I think it's just so interesting to look at it from a place of, like, people did it because they didn't know what was happening. Like, we spend so much time looking at this case from the perspective of, like, well, there is, like, we all know what's going to happen. Because it's so well known. Like, we know what's going to happen. But... A lot of the time, we don't look at it from a place of, like, they don't know. They don't know the end of this story. A hundred percent. So we can't judge them for making decisions that don't lead them to the end of the story when they don't know that that's where they're supposed to be going in the first place. And I also think this is where I have the most compassion, actually, for everyone involved is in these moments because they're looking at it as a kidnapping, They sent, like, one cop over there at 6.30 a.m. If there had been, like, more cops or, like, there's, I mean, there's so many what ifs, but it's, like, in that moment, like, they needed all of the civilian, like, friends and family to come, like, search the house because they didn't have the manpower to do that. And, like, they think that someone has absconded with John Bonet. So, yeah, you want Fleet White running around in the basement, like, that's what you want yeah. in that moment. And then... When your only choice is the rookie cop who couldn't get Christmas off, like, you do want a person that you trust. Correct. And someone who knows the house. I mean, we'll talk about this too, but, like, this house was... It was, like, a 20s Tudor, and they had built, like, a giant expansion that was, like, three floors. I mean, the house is massive. If you didn't know your way around, you could get lost so easily. Um... And so, like, in this moment, it's like they don't have the support that they need from the police. And so it really is the best option is to just, like, have everyone run around the house and see what they can find. Um, And even when they have the rookie cop and we'll get to the fundamental, you know, point break decision that was made shortly. But it's like this is what you want. You want everyone to run around the house and, like, look for the kid and look for any evidence. You know what I mean? Because they're not looking at it. We, at this point, we don't realize that everyone who's in this house is about to become a, sus- a suspect. Yeah. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When Patsy Ramsey spoke with Detective Arndt, she told her that she'd woken up about 5.45 a.m. and gone downstairs to make coffee. She said that she found the note, at which point she rushed up to John Bonet's room and found her gone. And that was a departure from the version of the story that she told Officer Rick French earlier, where she told him that she checked the bedroom first and then found the note. I think that the second story became like the accepted narrative in the story, but worth noting that that there was a discrepancy between the two stories. The police suggested that the Ramses make arrangements with the bank for the ransom, so they did. They arranged to have the bank hold the $118,000. Friends of the Ramses remarked on this day that the ransom was such a weird request because it was First of all, a weird number, but also it was such a small amount of money to ask from a, million, a multi-millionaire. Yeah. Patsy apparently repeated several times in a soft voice, why didn't I hear my baby? Oh. Part of the reason for that that I learned later, I mean, there may be multiple reasons depending on which theory you ascribe to, but part of the reason is because when they built that massive addition to the house, um, they built in soundproofing. And John Bonet's bedroom was on the second floor and Patsy's was on the third. Oh, no. So we don't know, like, if there was noise made in the 
commission of this crime. But even if there was, they might not have heard it. Um, and that's something that critics will later say, like, well, how could they not have heard it? And it turns out it's because there was soundproofing built into their very expensive house. When police asked the Ramseys if they had any idea who might have taken John Binet, Patsy suggested that their housekeeper, Linda Hoffman Pugh, may have been involved. She had worked with the Ramseys for two years. She was one of the only other people with a key to the house. And she had recently asked for a $2,000 loan. Patsy said that the handwriting in the ransom note also looked kind of like her handwriting. The Ramsey's neighbors, Betty and Joe Barnhill, also had a key to the Ramsey house, and they often took care of John Bonet's dog, Jacques. Oh. I know. My heart. The dog was named Jacques? Yeah. That is so cute. I know. Another name that was mentioned was Jeff Perrick, who was a former employee of John Ramsey's, who had been terminated several months ago and had left the company on bad terms, supposedly. By 10 a.m., the two-hour window during which the kidnappers said to expect a call had passed with no phone call. Um, and John Ramsey had gotten instructions from the police about, like, how to handle the phone call and, like, demand, you know, all the rules. Like, you demand to speak to the child, et cetera, et cetera. And then the window passed, no phone call. What a huge bummer to prepare for something like that and, like, go through the trauma of, like, learning how to talk to your child's kidnapper. Yeah. And then the kidnapper just doesn't call. Correct. Are you busy? Yeah. Detectives returned to the police station to devise a strategy, and the victim advocates went to lunch. This is another one of those sliding doors moments in the case for me. Because it's like, it's just by sheer chance that everything unfolds the way it does at this exact moment. Detectives went back to the police station. Victim advocates went to lunch. Linda Arndt was the only detective left in the house, along with the Ramses, the Whites, the Fernies, and the Reverend. But this is also another place where I'm like, okay, the window passed for the call, but, like, aren't we all kind of in our hearts still expecting a call? So, like, I can't believe that just everyone left. Yeah, they weren't like, up, oh, ding, 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 yeah. 10 a.m. Right. <laughs> like, it wasn't like a Fred Flintstones, like, the clock whistle goes off and he slides down a dinosaur. It's like, we're waiting for a fucking ransom call. Yeah, and it's like, we don't know who this kidnapper is. Are they punctual? Do they forget appointments? And then, like, an hour later, they're like, ah, oh, shit, I was supposed to call that family. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> well, yeah. And also, like, I don't know. Kidnapping is complicated. So, like, yeah, it's hard to, I don't know, like, assume that they're going to be able. It, I have a hard time making calls when I'm supposed to when I'm not kidnapping someone. So, like. Yeah. And it was 1997. Right. Or 1996. So we didn't have cell phones. They would have had to go find a phone. You would have had to, like, go into a restaurant to, like, make a phone call. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It just seems wild to me everyone left the house. Yeah. I think that's crazy. At this point, by the way, John Ramsey's whereabouts were unaccounted for for about an hour. Because there were no detectives there. Okay. Um, Linda Arndt found him reading letters around noon. And she was like assumed that he had disappeared because he went to go get the family's mail. But the Ramseys didn't have an exterior mailbox. Their mail came in through a slot in the door. So like he his whereabouts were just completely unaccounted for for an hour. Where was he reading the letters? Just like in the house somewhere. Okay. I just wonder if maybe that's what he was doing the whole time. <laughs> yeah, it probably was. Like, if you didn't see him for an hour in a giant house and then you found him in a room doing something that takes longer than maybe an hour, maybe that's what he was doing the whole hour. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Just saying. At noon, Linda Arndt paged Sergeant Mason to ask for more cops to come back to the house, but received no response. She repeated the page at 1230 and still got no response. And because they had put on, like, a radio silence call, she couldn't radio to the other cops and be like get the fuck over here yeah oh damn just like one thing after another just like mm -hmm. this whole case to me is like just sliding doors moments since this happened many people say that including john ramsey say that detective Arndt did this because she just like wanted to give john something to do because he was so like visibly upset at noon, she suggested that John and Fleet search the house from top to bottom to see if they could find anything belonging to John Bonet or anything that looked out of the ordinary. John will say, like, I think she just was, like, trying to give me something to do because I was upset. 
because Linda was the only police officer at the house, John and Fleet went off by themselves, unescorted. Another place where it's just like the cops just failed them so much. Um, because it like leaves all this room for speculation about what happened. Yeah. John went straight to the basement. He and Fleet went to the right of the stairs into a small room that had a model train set and some closets. Fleet remarked on the hole in the basement window that he had like cleaned up the glass from earlier. And John explained to him that he had broken it the previous summer when he was locked out of the house. Interesting. And the window itself was closed but unlatched. Next, they went down the hall to the room with the white door and the wooden latch. John opened it, turned on the lights, and screamed, Oh my God. Oh my God. And that is where we will pick up in part two of the John Bonnet Ramsey case. Uh, it just like breaks my heart it really does and i think thinking about it coming at it from a place of like non-judgment and like compassion over suspicion really makes it all the more heartbreaking oh yeah absolutely and i can just imagine like being the people who have been in the house that whole time and thinking like why didn't I open that door? Why didn't yeah. I turn on the light? Like, yeah. And then it's, you know, shitty to then turn around and see the entire case presented as like, well, they didn't open the door because they did, you know, yeah. like. It's interesting to me, and I know I've said this 50 million times, but it just seems like every point in the story was like a decision point that like led into this weird like, basically the weirdest possible timeline. Yes. It does feel like that. Like, there were so many other possible ways for this to unfold. And I'm sure we'll get into it in part two as well. But, like, even what happened, even what, like, when we look at, like, theories of what actually happened, even those moments feel like decision points that just went, like, off the logical timeline, if that makes sense. Like, everything about this case just feels so... Bizarre is, I think, an appropriate word. Like, it just, it feels like the opposite of Occam's Razor. Yes, like, it was exactly. the most, yes, the exactly. most chaotic, the most, the most like, like convoluted possible, possible. Yeah. series of events. It's like, it's just like if everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. And I think that's part of why people are so fascinated by this case and so obsessed with it. And I also think it's why people jump to a lot of conclusions because. The instinct is to say, it's probably Occam's razor, like 90%, I don't know, I'm just making up a number, but like 60% of like murders of children happen by someone in the house, you know, whatever. And so people just tend to go like, if it looks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And I'm like, I don't know. But you know what? I feel like, you know, there's 10% of the time where it's actually a rabbit. So like. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) It just Maybe is... this time it's a rabbit. And it feels like exactly what you said. Like at every turning point in the story, it's a it's not a duck. Yeah. Yeah. So it then makes sense that like the final boss battle is also not a duck. Yeah. You know? Correct. That's a great way of putting it. It's like every point in this story is crazy and wild. So it's so weird to me that people have a hard time accepting that maybe something crazy and wild happened. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I would even say it's not like crazy and wild. Like no one's doing anything that's like totally off the rails. It's just the most, I don't know if entropic is the word, but it's it or a word, but it's the most chaotic possible choices. Yeah. In that they're bringing the most chaos into the situation inadvertently but every choice everybody makes brings the maximum amount of chaos to the situation yes i agree it's not irony but it's like or maybe it is the maybe it's the actual definition of irony which is like it's always the exact opposite of what you would expect 
Yes. I think it is like the literal definition of irony. It's not like what like people think way. of as ironic, but I think it's like actually technically very yeah, it's ironic. It's not like rain on your wedding. Right. Day. It's like <laughs> or a free people. ride when you've already paid. It's just like this series of like chaotic events that allowed the narrative to unfold the way it did. And I also think, and like this is just me and I'm biased because I think what I think, but like when I was talking earlier about how the cops failed the Ramses because they set them up, it's like the, and part of that is just because of the circumstance of like it was Christmas and they were understaffed and whatever, but it's like the cops not having control of the situation created a vacuum where like everyone who was there had to involve themselves so deeply in the crime scene that that is like what ultimately completely like ruined any chance we have at like figuring out what actually happened yeah that's absolutely correct it truly is it's just the most possible chaos but yeah i'm excited to get into the investigation yeah and the theories i think coming from it as i said from a place of non-judgment And as you said, from, like, presenting the facts without presenting a suspect, Mm -hmm. like, or a theory, I think that's the way forward. Yeah. And it helps you – it's the most helpful way that has been presented to me to think about this case. So thank you for that, for framing it the way that you did. Yeah, of course. You're welcome. I do think – and I've said this to you, though – I do think that this case will be solved in, like, maybe the next 10 years. I think it'll probably be solved on December 20th, 2021. <laughs> on our TikTok live? On our TikTok live. <laughs> oh, my God. We, for legal reasons, that's not true. We're not going to solve the John Ramsey case on December 20th. We don't know. We don't know. Give us the benefit of the doubt. No, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Sometimes people will be like, isn't your whole job to, like, solve things? And I'm like, like, no. Nope. Exactly the opposite. No, no, no. No, no, no. It's like when you buy something at Ikea. It's like they don't put it together for you. They just give you the parts. Like we don't We give you a box full of parts. And then everybody looks at the parts and goes, hmm, that would be a nice bookshelf. And then the parts stay that way. (laughs) (laughs) We give you Svlarn. (laughs) And you look at the side of the box and go, Svlarn might be pretty in the corner of my living room. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for that. Thank everyone for listening. And we will see you on December 20th for our TikTok Live uh, after part two drops, the investigation and the theories covered by the fabulous Kayla Van Bunt. We don't know. Stay in your lane. Buckle the buck up. Smooches. Goodbye. Goodbye. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply